Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode of LitCast, we speak to, to authors who create a wide range of books. My name is Calvin Reed. I'm a senior news editor at Publishers Weekly, and I'm an editor of PW Comics World, PW's online coverage of comics and graphic novel. Today I'm going to be talking with Ezra Clayton Daniels, whose forthcoming graphic novel, Upgrade Soul, will be about to be published by uh, Lion Forge Publishers, which is the sponsor of today's podcast. Welcome, Ezra. To Thanks so much for having me. It's exciting to be here. Uh, as I said, um, uh, your graphic novel, Upgrade Soul, is about to be released by Lion Forge. But of course, actually, it was released in another form. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit as a, as a digital app originally. Is that right? Yeah, it's got kind of a complicated history. So I've been working on Upgrade Soul off and on for about 15 years, mostly in my um, downtime, you know, in evenings and weekends between uh, day jobs. Um, so I was I've been constantly trying to find ways to get this story out into the world. And the first way I put it out was as an interactive app for iOS devices in collaboration with a developer named Eric Lawyer. So we de- he developed this whole platform that was like, you know, it turned the story into this interactive um, piece that had reaction, uh, reactive audio. So as you progress through the story, the audio would automatically keep sync with where you were. So every panel transition would have an audio cue and there were these animation effects. So it was this really amazing thing that we put out and uh, we put it out independently and it did really well. It got a lot of uh, really great attention. It actually got us both multiple free trips to Europe to talk about <laughs> like the future of digital publishing and, and the future of comics. Um, we never ended up finishing it. We were serializing it, and we weren't making enough money on it to, to fund finishing it. So it got about halfway through, and I continued to work on doing the art um, for Upgrade Soul. And every once in a while, I would self-publish short runs of the book, just like digital print copies, so I could sit at convention tables and, and sell them. So Upgrade Soul has existed in the comics consciousness for, for many, many years. Um, but I finally finished the entire story last March, uh, and then right after I finished it, probably like within days of finishing it, I submitted the PDF to the Dwayne McDuffie Award submission. And I was fortunate enough to win the award, shockingly, considering the book like just like has been this such a weird thing that never really existed in a tangible form for so long. Um, so I won that award. And then shortly after that, I got an agent and then Lionforge offered to publish it. So it's finally coming out in its definitive form well, that's a great story. And for those who yeah. don't know, the, the Dwayne McDuffie Award for Diversity in Comics is named after Dwayne McDuffie, who was the, uh, the founder of Milestone Comics, really a pioneering um, you know, African-American-focused superhero line uh, that was published in conjunction with DC Comics. So the book and yourself really have, uh, have a fascinating background. I want to talk more about uh, actually Upgrade Soul, um, which I find really fascinating. In some ways, a classic science fiction tale. But very quickly, could you tell our audience a little bit about your background? I mean, I have you're your a comics artist, a writer, an illustrator, designer, yeah. animator, <laughs> I think filmmaker too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I've been trying a lot of things. I, well, <laughs> I so lots of, There's a long list there, so yeah. give us some insight. Well, I guess there's a the clear trajectory is that I've been struggling to find a way into the comics industry for 15 years. And that started by self-publishing uh, a few mini-comics and a graphic novel called The Changers back in 2003. Um, so I, I put that book out. It did pretty well. It got a really good response. It was distributed by Diamond and everything, but it was a self-published thing. 
And then shortly after that, I came up with the pitch for Upgrade Soul. And I basically had spent the past 15 years trying to get Upgrade Soul published, like pitching it to various publishers. And nobody was interested at the time, so I just kept on working on it. And so during that time, anytime a comics adjacent project would present itself to me, I would usually leap on it. So I've done, you know, educational comics, animation for documentaries. Um, I did a piece called Black Violet that was a collaboration with the Chamber Orchestra in Chicago that was like a live graphic novel concert series. Wow, um, you're, you're really taking the media places. I don't think it's gone before, but go on. Yeah, I started doing these comic art battles, which was kind of like a live um, game show. I always pitched it as like um, Win, Loser, Draw meets WWF. I started doing those at Stumptown Comics Festival back in 2004, and then I've been doing those fairly consistently uh, at different conventions and comics events since then. Yeah, and I did a short uh, Afrofuturist animated film with my girlfriend and collaborator, Adabukala Bodarin, called The Golden Chain uh, that is screened all over the place. It was at Rotterdam International Film Festival, and it was acquired by the Whitney Museum uh, last year as part of their permanent collection. So that was another yeah, really cool thing. Where are you from originally, may I ask? Yeah, I'm from Sioux City, Iowa, originally. The heartland. Yeah, easy. <laughs> that's an easy question to answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you're not an overnight success, or as most overnight successes, you put a lot of years into reaching this point. But tell us what you can about Upgrade Soul, the plot, without obviously spoiling it. I mean, for myself, I was fascinated. In some ways, it's a classic science fiction novel that seems to, to do what science fiction does. It looks at how, to some extent, how science perhaps can take us to this ideal future, a future where what could possibly go wrong? Right, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so the seed of Upgrade Soul came from me moving from my hometown of Sioux City, Iowa, to Portland, Oregon, to go to art school. Um, and in Sioux City, Iowa, I was like the star artist and writer in my high school and everything. And I was, you know, a big fish in a small pond kind of thing. And I moved to Portland, Oregon, where suddenly I was surrounded by a lot of people who could do everything I thought I was good at, but better. And so that, <laughs> that idea of just being faced with the, with like the threat of obsolescence um, was something that really struck me and, and, and kind of provided the seed for something that I want to develop into a horror story. So that was where the idea of Upgrade Soul began, which was just like being faced with someone who could do everything you can do, but better. And then eventually it started to encompass all different kinds of themes, like you know, there's, it touches on a lot of things from ageism to sexism to racism and, you know, the way society rescinds and grants opportunities based on the way you look and what those expectations are. So it got very complicated over the course of the 15 years that I was working on it. Well, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the plot there. Um, I mean, just in terms of, of, of blocking out the major characters, because the setting is fascinating, too. As you say, the novel seems to bring in a wide variety of issues uh, from age, and if I may say so, science, scientists, and the language of science. Yeah, uh, well, the story is about um, an aging couple named Hank and Molly, who are sole funders of an experimental rejuvenation procedure, uh, and, the, and the sole stipulation of their funding is that they be the first humans to go through the procedure. So the procedure promises to to basically run their body through a filtration system that filters toxins from their body on a molecular level. It's all fake science, like none of it is real. But unbeknownst to them, and I don't think this is giving away uh, any spoilers because this is in the first chapter of the book, unbeknownst to them, the, the procedure utilizes some basic cloning technology. And they're, they're 
inadvertently cloned and they're faced with uh, duplicates of themselves which are smarter, stronger, and better in every way except for the way they look and they kind of look like mutated potato fetuses. Yes, there's a horrible flaw in the process. Right. So the whole thing is like, I always describe it as, uh, it's, a, it's a presentation of a duality and the duality is um, asking the question of which vessel is the truer representation of the individual's identity. Is it the one that looks like the person and acts like the person that we know and recognize, or is it the one that on paper is a superior vessel in every way, but because of the way they look, they won't be subjected to a normal, quote-unquote, normal experience of life because society won't allow that to them. Well, it, well you've set up, um, well, I, don't, I hope I'm not giving it any away, uh, uh, what ultimately is a very intense, I'll put it that way, a very intense dilemma and, and, and ending. But along the way, what, what's fascinating is how the book sort of cycles through a number of issues, not necessarily to provide answers, but to allow the, the dilemma, a multiple dilemmas actually, to play themselves out. But, uh, in, in particular, as you say yourself, there's a lot of fake science, but there's quite a bit of science of some sort. Uh, and I'm curious about that, to what extent there is some actual science, and also, to what extent you seem to be casting the language of science as a substitute for moral culpability? Interesting. Yeah, well, the basic premise of the story is, is fake science that I created just as a platform to tell this moral, like, morality tale that I wanted mm-hmm. to tell. Um, but in developing that process, I actually did some tertiary research into some of the technologies that I was touching upon in the story. And I actually worked uh, with a couple of experts in, in the fields of um, optical engineering and genetic biology. Uh-huh. Um, so I actually did have a couple of people to bounce ideas off of just so things sounded right and functioned vaguely correctly. Things were convincingly obscure. <laughs> but yeah, <go> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so one of the things I actually did was I would, you know, I would, talk to these people about, you know, if I was making any mistakes that would make someone in their field upset. Like, that's the one thing. I didn't want a geneticist to read this book and be like, this guy is a moron. Like, I can't believe Yeah, I didn't want that to happen. So I would talk to these guys, and then uh, I would write a draft of the scenes that touched on the technology, and then I would send them um, sides from the script where the scientist is talking about this stuff. And I would basically ask them to rewrite everything that the scientist said with actual uh, jargon. So... Every once in a while, I would get a response back from one of these guys that had basically rewritten passages from my own oh, script. very interesting. Where, yeah. where the scientists were actually saying real stuff. And that, I think, to me, was the most exciting thing. One of the most exciting things about the whole process of working on this was getting those scripts back. And suddenly, my characters are saying stuff that sounds really convincing. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that's one of the things that struck me about the book. But it's a chilling effect because, as, as I said before, there is the moral issue of what's going on in front of you. And these scientists seem to deflect at various points in the book the moral question and devolve into a dense a scientific language that seems to be all about results and goals. Yeah, totally. And I, I, I didn't want Upgrade Soul to become a story that was about the dangers of science. I didn't want it to be anti-science in a way that I feel like a lot of science fiction, especially science fiction horror stories, Tend to tend to go because it's an easy way to create drama, right? In a, in a science fiction horror story, so I really wanted to present not the science as the threat, but it's the subjective um, criteria with which the scientists um, are compelled to judge the outcome of their experiment. So, with, with Upgrade Soul, 
the clones end up being these physically, you know, unappealing people, but they're superior to the originals in every way. So the only thing that qualifies them as unsuccessful is the way they look. Well, one of the other issues, of course, um, the characters in your book are, uh, you have a multiracial family, and race does come into a play. In fact, the subject of the experiment and the clone uh, go through uh, a discussion about race that in some ways would be very familiar and an identity politics discussion today. Yeah, so because I was working on Upgrade Soul for so long, it was a really great opportunity for me to sort of work through some of these ideas and issues that came up in my own life and mind with dealing with these sort of like racial politics issues. And I think one of the advantages of having it in my life for so long is that I could actually kind of go back and revisit some of these things as new ideas and new approaches um, presented themselves to me and as I kind of made these revelations. So there's the scene that you talk about where Henry and Hank are having a conversation about race was really something that was deeply on my mind at the time and it just happened to be something that I could work into the story um, pretty seamlessly. Well, the book is a fascinating platform for a variety of issues, but I don't want people to think that this this is like uh, you know a homework assignment. This is really a lively, a lively book, and let's talk about the the visual quality of it too, because it's a graphic novel. You did all the illustrations. The drawing is really elegant and beautiful, and really the color is another thing. I'd love to hear you talk more about the coloring of the book because it's a very important element I feel in in this book and in the mood of the book and other conversations. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, uh, I can talk a little bit about um, what I was doing at the same time that I was working on Upgrade Soul. And that was, for the most part, I was building a career as a forensic artist doing oh. um, trial graphics. Um, so I was, I was doing um, courtroom presentation graphics, like oh, really? um, medical illustrations, technical illustrations, charts and graphs for high-stakes court cases. So I was learning in this field um, this idea of, like, clarity of information. So, like, to create a... Uh, an effective trial graphic is all about reducing really complex ideas to a visual that can be digested at a glance by a layman, whether the layman is a jury or a judge, someone who doesn't have a background in the science. So it was all about like super clear presentation of information. So that was the big thing that influenced the look of Upgrade Soul. Um, I wanted it to be very clean line. I didn't want to rely on um, dark colors or fields of black to create tension or horror. I wanted everything to be presented very sterile and very matter of fact. So that's where the where the general aesthetic came from. And I also didn't want to use any um, like camera angle techniques to create tension. I always had the camera set in a static position for most scenes. That was just looking straight forward as characters moved around in a scene. Um, so I, I was really trying to challenge myself to not use presentation techniques to create tension. I wanted all the tension to come from the characters and the interactions. Very quickly here, I, w- I do want to jump to moving from digital self-publishing to print publication. I mean, uh, you want to talk about that transition? Having a publisher instead yeah. of doing everything yourself? <laughs> it's been pretty incredible, to tell you the truth. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really weird, exciting transition. I think I do... Um, cherish my experiences doing everything on my own in the past because I, you know, I have a, a much better understanding of how things work and and what I need to do and how I can help things move uh, more smoothly. I mean, just the idea of being vetted by someone else is a really exciting thing, and I think it helps, you know, it helps my name be a part of conversations that um, it was never part of before, even though I'm behind the same, fundamentally the same story. How much effort was was involved in converting it from a digital to uh, a very, if I may so, a very elegant print? Well, it was there was no conversion process. So when I designed, when I was working on designing the actual um, app 
I designed all of the art in such a way that it was a seamless transition to print. Because the digital thing was such a, um, a risk, we didn't know if it was going to catch on, and I didn't want to spend all this time creating the story for something where it would you know, only work in this one format and die there if it didn't find an, find an audience. Sure, technology has a way of doing that, but go on. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> So every one of the pages was actually done in a standard comic book format, and then um, I just did all the art in layers. So when I when I sent it over to the developer, he could create this digital picture box effect and some of the animations that laid on top of that, just using the layered Photoshop files. So really, all the art was already done in standard comic book format. So I just had to flatten those files and send them off to the to the printer. Well, it's really quite an amazing uh, project, and uh, it's going to be very interesting now to see it in the marketplace now as a print book. Uh, very quickly now, what, are you, what else are you working on? And I, I, I say this because I, I understand you're working on something with another artist, Ben Pasmore, who I, I'm also very much uh, uh, a fan of. Yeah, yeah. So I met Ben uh, a couple years ago at the Chicago Alternative Comics Expo, and this was before your black friend. He was um, he was he was selling Daglo a hole, yeah. and I saw this book, and I was just like, "This guy is going to be a household name. I need to grab his coattails and try to find a project to work on as soon as I can before he gets too big for me." So I had this horror sci-fi horror comedy script that I'd been tooling with for a couple years. And uh, it seemed like he would be a good fit for it. So I polished it off, did another rewrite, and I sent it over to him and asked if he wanted to collaborate with me on it. And he said, yeah, so this book, um, we finished it. It's coming out on this uh, next summer on Fanagraphics. It's called Bottom Feeders, and it's a sci-fi horror comedy that takes on gentrification and cultural appropriation in a horror monster story set on the south side of Chicago, and I'm super, super excited about how it turned out. The Passmore is, is a great new talent as well, so we look forward to that. But we are here to talk about Upgrade Soul, which is going to be coming out from Lion Forge in September. It's really a quite extraordinary book. You've got an extraordinary new publisher. Their credo is comics for everybody, and I think you've done a, a lot to carrying their credo forward. Thanks to you, Ezra, uh, for being on LitCast, and thanks to the audience for listening. And uh, join us again next week for uh, LitCast.